It's only a few weeks until students are back at school. In Boston, if this year is like last year and like many others before that, there will be fewer of them in classrooms this fall. It's part of a decades-long decline in the population of school-aged kids in Boston. If the trend continues, we could be battling San Francisco for the dubious honor of being the most kid-free city in the country. It's a development that tends to float beneath the radar, but Will Austin says we should be shouting about it from the rooftops. He's the founder of a nonprofit organization called Boston Schools Fund, which focuses on increasing the number of high-quality seats in Boston schools. I'm Michael Jonas from Commonwealth Magazine, and Will Austin joins us today on the podcast. Hey, Will. Hi, Michael. How are you? Doing well. So uh, let's let's talk about this this trend that uh, that has been going on for decades, but sort of you know like some of these big mega developments that like happen over time, they don't tend to get the notice maybe that that other sudden you know, sort of uh, uh, changes do. And so it feels like uh, it's sort of like a slow burn going on here. What, what, is it that, what is it that is happening in Boston? Like many things um, since March 2020, um, things that were slow, to use your term, or below the radar, suddenly were revealed or accelerated by the pandemic. And you see in the last two, three years, and there's lots of questions and concerns and research about school enrollment, school age population, not just in Boston, but in cities around the country. But the reality is that this has been going on really for the last two, almost three decades. This kind of story of how the city actually grew and how Boston changed, like the Boston that I grew up in fundamentally shifted and changed in its demography. And in that change, we've had less and less kids. And like most kind of complicated problems, there's not a single easy explainer for it. It's a variety of different factors that have resulted in us having less kids in our city. And, you know, it's not unique to Boston. You're seeing this in a lot of cities around the country. Just it's happening at a more rapid pace here. And we also maybe sort of started out a little ahead of other places. I mean, we had already seen, I don't know, going back to the 70s, really, some, you know, exodus of kids from the schools. So just start off by giving us a little bit of a, even just in rough numbers, a picture of how big a decline we've seen. And as you said, it's laid over this other kind of remarkable fact, which is that Boston's been really surging in overall population. I think we're sort of somewhere approaching now 700,000, which is, you know, we were, we bottomed out, what, around 500, 550,000. So it's a huge increase. And you got like these two trend lines kind of that have been moving in opposite directions. Yeah, and kind of missing each other. And so the, the kind of Boston we find ourselves in now really started in the mid to late 90s, where the adult population of the city began to dramatically increase for really two big factors. One is that the economics of Boston and other major cities lent themselves towards growth. And so an area that has higher education institutions, corporations and organizations that are aligned with the new economy, whether that's biotech, finance, et cetera, just meant that more and more adults were either staying here after college or moving here for work. And Boston also saw a pretty significant increase in its foreign-born population during that time. And so there's kind of a surge of adults um, over a period of, you know, let's say 20 years, somewhere between 100, 150,000 more adults moving into the city, um, which was great for the local economy um, and also among other things, drove up housing prices significantly. And as those two things were kind of taking hold, the dynamics that lend themselves towards more kids being in the city 
trended downwards. You had younger adults, right? So younger adults tend to have kids later and they tend to have less kids. So the average household size in Boston became that kind of contract over time. Housing prices increased dramatically. And it's always important to start with the kind of market and population before you get to housing prices, because the housing prices don't just happen in a vacuum, right? Demand drove those housing prices up and also lagging supply. And so you have more expensive housing, smaller households. And in Massachusetts and in Boston, birth rates started to decline really in the mid 2000s, say 2005, six birth rates started going down generally. So all these different forces kind of combined just have less and less kids. And so you, if you kind of track the school age population over time, you see a pretty dramatic drop. So it's about down about 10,000 kids in the last decade or so. Um, and if you go back to the 90s, it's probably a little bit higher. It's for about 20,000 or so. There was a point where the child age population decline kind of leveled off for a couple of years, about five years back or so. Um, and then, of course, the pandemic kind of restarted kind of that trend. It's a pretty significant decrease. You're talking about anywhere between you know, 15% of the kids gone in the last 15 years. It is really remarkable. And just uh, you wrote a great piece uh, that was in the Boston Globe earlier in the summer in June uh, that we will link to in the, in the write-up of the podcast on our site. And in that, you, you offered some, some interesting sort of context or color just sort of by way of talking a little bit about your own family. So you're a, you're a son of Boston. Just give a little flavor, as you did there, for sort of the household size that uh, your parents grew up in and, and what kind of an average street looked like in Boston in terms of families and, and school-age kids and sort of what we see today. Yeah, so my dad's a retired uh, Boston firefighter. My grandfather was, too. Um, he grew up one of nine on Harborview Street in Dorchester. My mom's one of six, grew up in Southie. Small family, right? <laughs> yeah, small family. I have, um, I've, I get the number wrong. I have somewhere in the middle range 30s of first cousins, right? And so Boston, at the time, the economics lent themselves towards, you know, families being that size, and that's part of the demography of the baby boom and et cetera. But, you know, that tale continued even to my childhood. So I, I grew up in Dorchester, my parents still there, and- there were many families and many kind of large families that lived in our neighborhood. And so um, what I kind of used to say to people all the time is that there were 18 school-aged kids on my street that were within three years of each other. And so that allowed for, you know, communal forms of childcare, you know, walking to school together and kind of created a, a real kind of um, community within that space. And, I, and I'm, I'm aware and sense of the fact that you can define families in many different ways. Um, but the reality is, is that, you know, kids do make neighborhoods, whether we, in really simple terms. And so that, that kind of opportunity is very different and, and gone now because when we have smaller households and then two, the schooling in the city has become increasingly more fragmented, right? So kids go to increasingly different schools despite living near each other. And there's reasons for that. There's policy reasons for that. There's cultural reasons for that. But it does mean that kids in neighborhoods now, there tend to be less of them and they tend to have um, less ties to each other than they did a generation ago. And just give us again in rough terms a picture of, of the Boston public schools and what the numbers look like there today versus 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Yeah, I mean, so... The last this we'll have updated enrollment figures this fall, 
But last year, um, the total enrollment of Boston Public Schools was around 46,000 students. Now, it's slightly higher than that, let's call it 48,000, because there's a couple of Boris Manor in district chattas, which you know are often lumped with the district, but are technically their own district. So in round numbers, let's say that's 48,000 kids or so. Um, now, the state of Massachusetts began first kind of collecting data and publishing it on public school enrollment in 1994. In that time, Boston Public Schools is at 63,000 students-ish. So you've seen a pretty significant decline over that time. And the part that I think is most important for folks to understand is that the biggest shift that's happened in Boston Public Schools is not just the size, but also the relative composition. And so there are 16,000 less Black children in Boston Public Schools than there were 20 years ago. 16,000, right? And so the, the, the composition district has changed in the sense that we have significantly less Black students, and therefore the percentage reflected of, of Latino students is dramatically increased. And so, you know, this it, the Latinos are the, the almost the majority of the Boston Public School District, and that was not the case 20 years ago. And, and just help us think about what this all means for the city. Um, I mean, it's, it's a very different picture with this shrinking population in the schools um, against the backdrop of a growing city. Um, you know, is it a crisis? Should we care? And, and I guess, and, 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 and you know, you're, you're focused on schools and, and, and trying to improve school quality uh, for families, which I think you probably correctly think is sort of connected with the degree to which people will stay and want to be in schools here. So it matters a lot to you, and you think it's important. Is it something that's sort of on the radar of leaders here in the city? I would say that at least I, we have seen in the last year an acknowledgement of the problem. Um, we had first been done doing analysis with concerns about this trend for the city five, six years ago and largely met with deaf ears. Like, oh, the kids will come back. The families come back. It's a blip, you know, those types of things. And so I would encourage to hear city councilors, Superintendent Skipper, you know, reflect the reality that we have less kids and that's not anyone's fault. And that's just a, a function of capitalism, for lack of a better word, right? We just have less kids here. Um, and so acknowledging the problem is kind of the first step. So that's a good thing. And the short-term consequences are pretty clear. Less kids creates budget issues. You know, when you have less kids, you're receiving less money for people from the federal government. You're receiving less money from the state. And it also stretches the resources in your schools because primarily our schools in Boston are funded on a student basis, on an enrollment basis. And so many of the schools that are under-enrolled are feeling already kind of a budget pinch of not having enough kids. So the short-term issue is that it creates resource issues for kids. The longer-term issue is that you, you, when you lose the base of families and kids in a city, it can begin in kind of dark terms, a little bit of a spiral, right? I mean, you mentioned the 1970s. I, when you mentioned that time, I think of cities like Newark and Detroit and, and cities that kind of their economic spiral began with the loss of families and school-aged kids because economic activity changes, your residential tax base changes. In a lot of ways, families are your kind of most reliable consumers. They move the least, they spend the most consistently. And so they really create the foundational base for how cities even finance themselves. And so the longer term kind of implications are, are pretty dramatic. Talk a little about what it means for the, for the school system. Now, we've had a, a lot of talk uh, in the last uh, 
year or so about troubles in the Boston schools in terms of performance, management. We've you know had these big dramatic showdowns with uh, state education officials about whether they might take over the schools or not. We're we're kind of plowing ahead with a with a sort of you know agreement on some improvement uh, steps that the district needs to take. But again, that's against the backdrop of this sort of shrinking system, but one that you know we've been seeing huge increases in spending in. And this is also kind of related to the population decline, an issue that has been looming for a while and we haven't quite faced it. And that is, you know, do we need to close schools? Do we need to consolidate? Some people. Uh, the, the kind of uh, clinical term is right size, right? Uh, right size the district. We've got, uh, it seems, a lot of you know half-empty buildings. It's a huge third rail issue. Anytime you talk about closing schools, and I was just interested to see in your piece uh, that not only is that an issue, but you talked also about uh, there's Mayor Wu wants to pump money into new facilities, and you talked about this idea of bringing on really accomplished educators to lead what you said was kind of launching new schools in those buildings. So help us understand a little this idea of launching new schools at the same time that in in just sort of raw terms, we may have too many schools. Yeah, and, and, and there's a lot in there, but I'll, I'll stop by saying that there's general population decline and part of the enrollment in Boston public schools has been driven by the fact that there is demand for other options. And you just, you have to say that because it's just, it's a, it's a baseline fact. You know, Metco continues to be popular amongst families in the city. And during the same period, of course, Chadas in Boston expanded dramatically. Now that accounts for some of the decline in population in Boston public schools, but does not account for all of it when you do the math, but it is worth kind of mentioning those pieces. And also in reflecting what you say, in the sense that if families are concerned about quality, they're searching out other options. And I think there are two things that families really struggle with in, in a city which has really had school choice since the 1970s, is that one is that the school choice process is very challenging and opaque. And so for a lot of families, they get tired of doing lotteries and wondering where their kid is going to go. And so they'll opt for something that's more consistent, whether that's, you know, enrolling in a private school or a small Catholic school or moving to a gateway city or a city that has kind of you know, lower rents, but has really clear geo-coded schools. So you see families do that type of work and you have to acknowledge that, that that's part of the reason why you see population decline. And it's not an accident that as Boston was declining its child population, Randolph and Stoughton increased, right? So there's a regional kind of effect to what's going on here. Chelsea public schools enrollment increased during the pandemic, didn't decline. Right. So there's definitely a regional factor we have to be kind of aware of here. And then in the kind of complicated math of this is that we have too many school buildings and most of them are old. The two billion dollar 10 year effort of the Green New Deal for the Boston Mobile Schools has to solve that math problem in a way where in 10 years we have the right number of schools in the right places for the right number of kids with an eye on quality. And the reality is now is that quality options as defined by families, not even by the state, by demand data, how they're tiered by BPS, they're not evenly distributed amongst the city. And so the long 10 year plan has to account for how do we have new schools or expanded high quality schools in areas where families have high demand and high need. And at the same time, reconciling that we don't need the buildings we have. 
you know, this was mentioned um, in the Bay State Banner by Boston Teacher Union President Jessica Tang, that, you know, we have a lot of small elementary schools. And so it is very likely the city is going to be moving in a, in a direction of merging or consolidating those schools the first step. And they've actually started that this year. And I mean, it needs to probably accelerate, right, that process or continue. Uh, there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of ground to cover. Do you get the sense that Mayor Wu and the new superintendent, Mary Skipper, are kind of ready to ready to tackle that and the the really kind of challenging politics that that come with that. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm confident that Superintendent Skipper has experience with this. I mean, they, you know, part of her tenure in Somerville was building the new Somerville High School. So these, these are issues she's very attuned to. And having been worked in the district before for years, she kind of understands the politics of it. Um, you know, in terms of the kind of the, the speed and scope of this, you know, we have a good opportunity because there's obviously a lot of federal stimulus money available. Um, there's there's kind of this, I think, almost like a mandate to go and do this, um, you know, as described by the mayor in her office. So much like building plans before, whether it's build BPS or other agendas, the vision is out there. The question now is execution. What buildings, in what places, on what timeline, how much does it cost? And so for those of us who watch these issues closely, we've kind of circled next um, December uh, uh, 2023, because that's when a new master facilities plan is due. And so that master facilities plan will have to lay out to be successful in very clear detail, the number of projects, where, when, how are you going to pay for it? And the reality is that we haven't had something like that in the city in a very, very long time. We've had long reports. We've had kind of aspirational ideas. We've had concepts where we haven't had a legitimate plan to address these issues. Um, and until we see that, um, it's going to remain a big issue. And talk a little about um, in this sort of smaller uh, Boston public school system that we now have some other demographic issues. We talked a little about sort of race and ethnicity. Uh, talk about the sort of income distribution and and who's here because um, the sense that you get uh, strongly and and uh, this has been in a lot of other reports. There's there was also a great look at what's happening here in the city by the Boston Indicators Project at, at the Boston Foundation that came out a couple of years ago, and it really painted a pretty uh, jarring picture of what you'd have to say is kind of the hollowing out of the middle class in Boston and the continued you know the soaring of housing prices during the pandemic. Just in the two years since that report came out, I'm guessing is only accelerating that so that. Um, you know, the idea that you can have kind of families in that sort of broad middle range stay or find a, find, you know, a home in the city and want to raise kids here just seems increasingly questionable. And, and yet in your piece, you, you know, you tried to look forward with some degree of hopefulness that there, there could be a way forward. Not, you're not going to sort of suddenly reverse these huge trends overnight, but to start to, as you say, first acknowledge them is the first step and then sort of take some steps to try to at least sort of, you know, make a dent in that. So what, how, how sort of, how bad is that situation in terms of the disappearance of this broad middle and, and what things could we do and, and are, do you see the city already starting to try to do to address it? And there's definitely some evidence that the school system is continuing having a greater concentration of higher need students. And so, 
even in the last two years, and there's some noise here because the state changed the way they calculate some of this. Some of the biggest shifts in schooling in the last two to three years has been the percentage of kids in our school systems that are economically disadvantaged. So there's definitely been a concentration of lower income students in Boston public schools and public schools in Boston. The data seems to really kind of imply that. You know, Boston has had a relatively high percentage of students with special needs for some time. And within that group of special needs, there tend to be students with really significant needs uh, beyond what can be kind of served in the inclusion setting. And as we were talking earlier, we've had an influx over time of a, a larger percentage of families that are, are born elsewhere. And so we have a very big population of English learners. And so when you have that concentration of need, What's difficult, of course, is it puts taxing on resources. So even if we have lots of money going to schools and high pupils, if we have students that have significant needs and they're concentrated, it can be really difficult to like serve those students' needs. And so that's kind of what, what you kind of see to the point of the hollowing out is that you essentially see that you have a school system that is funded through the property tax of people that don't send their kids to those schools. <laughs> and just don't think that's good for community <laughs> um, because you basically have a system that's bereft of ownership um, and real agency on the part of the families that participate in it. And also not really a sense of accountability if folks aren't participating in, in that system itself. So what is that, what, what is the kind of the longer term kind of antidote of sorts is that it really does stop with housing. Um, you know, it's really clear that housing production in the city has become a priority in the last couple of years it seems like we're still catching up. And it definitely appears that there has not been an emphasis yet on family housing. Um, you know, And family housing in the sense that it doesn't necessarily have to be a single family home, but recognizing the fact that when folks have kids, they need space. Um, you know, generational <laughs> needs around space have changed. Um, you know, my father's family grew up, I think it was three bedrooms in Hoverview with nine kids. Um, folks don't do that anymore. Um, and for so families need and want more space. And so when we're building these new units, you know, every time I see a development going up that has a share of one bedrooms and two bedrooms, you're just saying, well, that's not family housing. That's not going to solve the problem. And so, you know, hopeful that the new, new leadership of the city and the BPBA will kind of emphasize that kind of work and make sure there's incentives and, and structures in place to create more actual family housing. I think that's, that's a big component of this. Um, and then I think th this point around kind of certainty and quality is something I've talked a lot about too, is that families, if they have housing that's stable and clear and affordable, they also need a clear and stable and uh, system to send their kids to. And the current kind of enrollment system, particularly for early childcare, again, it's very opaque and very challenging for families to take on. And families have varying levels of quality that's proximal to them because of where we are. And so the Green New Deal for public schools for the next 10 years has to be anchored on how can we make sure there's equitable access to high quality schools and it's predictable because that'll ultimately keep families here. Um, no, and I'd say the, the last piece, which I think is the more challenging one, is that, you know, we're fighting against, we're fighting against devices. I know I sound old, but there's just so much research now that kids don't engage with each other as much as they used to. That, they, that in some ways it's become easier to, to not have your kid have friends or go do things um, because, the, because the proliferation of devices, that was before the pandemic, right? I mean, there's fairly decent social science evidence to know that anxiety and depression 
and kind of disengagement with kids was up, basically starting with the rise of smartphones. And so as families and as communities, we have to work even harder to get our kids to do things with each other and have families do things with each other. Um, you know, at one, kind of breaking the patterns that have been formed over the last two to three years during the pandemic, but then also just the larger kind of separation of our life that has happened because of devices and the ability for many folks to work remotely. But that, that's a big problem to solve. And I guess how that relates to what we're talking about here is that, you know, in neighborhoods, you know, with sort of far fewer school-age kids, it's just hard to have that kind of spontaneous sort of neighborhood-based, uh, you know, kind of social world where kids are engaging with each other and not with uh, with some device. And you know, again, like theme of this is, you know, pandemic reveals and accelerates. That, that tendency was already there. Um, and then the pandemic just kind of put gasoline on it. Um, you know, and it's, and I, I think the core piece of this is that, you know, we want our kids to, you know, grow up in an area where they can be, they have everything they need in terms of material and shelter and all the basics, the Maslow's hierarchy, but they also have the ability to develop relationships and build them. And we've kind of slept walk over the last two decades here in Boston have not really supported that and said, you know, kind of, you know, kind of chased other forms of economic activity and city building. And so I'm hopeful with this new administration and with kind of the, the stage that we're in now in this country that there can be a focus on kind of creating policies that will drive community. Um, in a lot of ways, kids are often at the center of that. Great. And uh, if we've been sleepwalking, I think you've, you've at least uh, been trying to help wake us up on these issues, Will. So uh, thanks for doing that and for this conversation about a really important topic facing, uh, facing us. So uh, thanks, thanks for the conversation. Thanks, Michael. And thank you all for listening to another episode of the podcast. We will see you next week.